0: another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie. I'm Danielle. And yes, we are back. I sounded really happy just then.
1: (laughs) Your face looked very happy. You look like one of those, uh, like an animatronic Disney character. I've never been to any Disney, but I've seen the I've seen the films. (laughs) Yes.
0: So I uh, what's going on with you? I mean, I ask you this literally every week, but I'd like to ask you again.
1: What's going on with you? I'm happy to tell you, um, I have recently started a new job mm. and it's my first time uh, n- as not just a writer on a show, but I'm show running. So I'm I'm running the whole room, which means I get yes. to help define the story and, uh, you know, I hired all the other writers and it's a big, big deal. Um, yes, ma'am. I can't, t- can't tell you anything about the show, but I can tell you that I'm working You're with... You're the boss. Uh, that's all you can tell us. That's all I can tell you. That's all I can say. And it's fun, and I like it. And it's um, it's a show that Lena Waith created, so I get to work closely with with that crew, and I um, I'm excited. I'm very excited. But oh my god,
0: we're also proud of you. Thank we you. We love to see it. We truly love to see it. Also, I have to tuck this in here because um, just to puff you up a tiny bit more. But I am reading your book. Oh, it's not thanks. out right now. <laughs> you know what that means. I got an exclusive copy. Yes, I roll like that. Um, but I'm reading it. I'm in the middle of it. And I love it. Duh. Oh,
1: thank you, Millie. That means like it means so much to me when people I know and love read it. And even not, even if they don't like it, I'm just so thoughtful. I'm just so grateful that people take the time and that yeah. you've taken the time to read it. And there's a lot of what's weird about writing a book, too, that I've I've been thinking about lately now that I'm like starting to do events for librarians and all this stuff is that. um. You can know someone for a long time and think, you know, like a lot about them. But there's a lot of things that you just can't translate in, you know, conversation or in dinner conversations. Like there's a lot of nuanced stuff that like you can tell me about your life and I get. But if I read you writing about it, it would still be a a fresh experience. So I'm glad for that.
0: I 100 percent agree. I mean, even as we're doing this podcast, I mean, I've known you for technically a a long time. but. There are times when we're just talking that you'll like slide a little info about you. Same. A.K.A. your brother is super hot and looks like Drake. Uh, And I was like, oh, I didn't know that about her. And now all I'm doing is like staring at this photo of her brother with hearts in my eyes. (laughs) But also you're right, though, about the like, I guess maybe it's different. Like when you write, I'm sure that for you, writing about yourself is different than just talking about yourself, like to a person, like just in that conversational way. Um, And you're probably, you know, putting a lot of details in there that you wouldn't even necessarily bring up in a conversation.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's that's why I get happy when people I know are reading it, because I'm like, oh, like, you know, these things about me, it's not strange or weird for you to hear them. But the way that I'm talking about it is like more informative. So I just feel like that's that's something that makes me feel very close to my friends. And I like that a lot.
0: Yeah, well, I definitely feel closer to you just by reading all of these little stories and anecdotes and, you know, everything like that. I mean, when it comes down to it, are you excited for the book to come out? Like, it's it's going to be like, what, in a month? A
1: month-ish? Yeah. it's about a month, yeah.
0: <laughs> what are your feelings? Are you terrified? Are you... Excited? I mean, is this something that you've been preparing for, like just that kind of, you know, the pageantry of a book release?
1: I mean, it's, it's my first time doing it in a big way. So I don't know that there I don't feel like I can prepare for it because I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm excited because it's going to be out in the world. I think that it's going to be kind of a, it's a finalization of the project for me. Um, But what I really love, and I don't know if this is ridiculous of me or not, but I think that what, what makes me feel good was writing it and going through that process and, you know, a healing and talking about it in therapy and kind of talking about it with my family and just the work for me was in the writing. So I, I, don't plan on reading comments. I don't plan on reading Goodreads. Like, I just want it I, that my part is done. Like, yeah. I birthed it and now it's on its own and it can do whatever it wants. So I'm excited to talk about it and talk about the experience of it and writing it. But, um, yeah, I kind of have to remove myself from from everything else that comes after that, which I'm sure my publisher is thrilled about because they're like, hello, can you help us make our fucking money back that we spent on it? <laughs> you jazz it up a little bit and maybe, <laughs> but I am excited. I am like, I'm excited to do, I'm doing a lot of virtual events. You know, we still can't go out in the world, which is fine. And I just feel like fine about it. You know, I'm not stressing about it.
0: Well, I'll tell you, like, I think it's very, I think it's awesome. Obviously I've been saying this for many years because I knew you were writing a book for a while. I think to me, I'm sort of like very, enamored of you in the sense that you can be like completely open about yourself. I feel like I'm still kind of guarded in a lot of ways. Like, I feel like there are times where I kind of want to tell the story and then pull back a little bit. Cause I'm just kind of afraid of, you know, revealing myself. I mean, it's just, I think that's a normal reaction for people, but I also, I love the bravery of being able to just kind of like say it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I admire that about you. So,
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that. That truly means a lot to me. I thank you so much. And I, I wonder, too, if this is maybe a morbid take on it. But I wonder, I think a lot of people feel better about writing, revealing things about themselves after their parents are gone. Sure or like their family members are not going to pay attention to it somehow, or like you know that's why I think blogs took off because you could write whatever you want under whatever name you wanted, and your family would might not ever find out <laughs> so,
0: oh God, I mean, I think about this all the time, just those early days of the internet with like i mean, this was even like pre blogger days yeah of that really like the internet felt like there was fifteen people on it, and we were all being super confessional on these kind of like weird um you know, websites that, you know, like diary land and that kind of thing. And there were moments where I was like, oh, I feel like I can just this is like a diary and I can just kind of literally say whatever I want. All my deep, dark secrets, not realizing that, like, in 10 years, it would be
1: like <laughs> the center of everyone's universe. Um, like, but, you um, know, this diary entry where you say that you killed a dog, uh, you are canceled now. <laughs> <laughs> You kill the dog in your dream so you're canceled in real life.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I love though that I love though that you were part of that generation too because that's kind of how I met you. I think somebody yeah. asked us I think it was Alexis our producer who was who kind of asked the question. She was basically like, "How did you guys meet?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, we met online."
1: Yeah. We met on like I knew you from Live Journal because I think that's also how I met Shalewa. Yeah. We solidified our friendship really after feminist Ryan Gosling came out. And then we started following each other on Tumblr. Yeah, But I would, I kind of like, we'd always kind of followed each other on all the platforms and we had so many mutual friends. And then when I had the chance to meet you in real life, I was like, this is dope. We get to meet Millie. And I was doing a story for uh, the National Geographic years ago about the green book way before the movie came out. And um, I kind of was following the path of using the Green Book to stop at these you know, towns and cities and figure out what had sprung up around this this trail now. And I stopped in Atlanta. And we went out to the colonnade, and I got to meet Sophie, your dog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, me and Sophie fell in love right away. That's right. But it was just like, it was cool, because once we hung out in real life, I was like, oh, she's like my homie. <laughs> like, yeah. this is, like, it wasn't, you know, sometimes you meet people from online and they were it's like you're totally different from what I expected. <laughs> yeah. When it's mad awkward, you're like, oh, yeah. God. And it wasn't. We were just friends. It was great.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing, I think, too, is that I was always like I always wanted to be like better in person. And I hope I'm better in person because I online I feel like, oh, God, that's just like me talking bullshit. Um, but that I'm also just sort of like able to you know, be engaging and be conversational and yeah. not weird, you know, in person. And I feel like the there's a, it's funny because a lot of like I have a lot of friendships now that if I trace it back, it's either from LiveJournal or Flickr because Flickr yes. was kind of a thing for me as well, where I had a lot of like friends that I met through there because we were both, you know, everybody was into photography and whatever. But it is. It's a weird concept because, again, I do feel like the Internet was smaller yeah. It, it felt like nobody was really on it. So in a weird way, it was kind of like, well, at least you knew that you were all early adopters of the Internet. And maybe that made you sort of OK, even though that's a Completely. weird thing. Whereas now, if you asked me to like meet somebody from Twitter, Mm-mm. like some random, you know, shit poster, I'd be like, oh, my God, they're going to murder me. No way.
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> you better meet in broad daylight in the middle of a park with a grenade. Like got and, and also
0: they could be a machine like they yes. they may not even be the real person
1: that's so what weird if, like you go to the park and like wally kind of rolls up and is like hello melly you're like you i was talking to you this whole time wally again you got me again i was
0: created by a lab in a university
1: or that you know that robot that's just uh it was just like the woman's head and she was like we should eradicate all humans, and they had to like reprogram. Oh, no. What if that head showed up on like a wheelbarrow and was just like, "What's up, motherfucker? You're first."
0: <laughs> Fuck, that's creepy. Oh, I, I that. like I, I can't watch those videos where they have. I know that there it's a bunch of scientists that are like, "Look at this amazing thing we just figured out," but to me, I'm like, the takeover has begun. Absolutely, the countdown is on. You know, I'm like, ah.
1: When scientists are standing around a robot that's like doing backflips and they're like losing their shit, I'm like, you guys, you're you're the you're the problem. You're not the solution. You just (laughs) fucked things the fuck up for us forever. Now that you gave this robot like a conscious thought. commands like we're done we're done the event i keep calling that the event horizon but that is not it I love it's the, singularity. Generic term. It's the generic singularity term for future stuff it's my generic term and it's absolutely is not it it's the singularity <laughs> so yeah these scientists creating the singularity and thinking they're doing something for the benefit of mankind and i'm like how about you slow that down don't make me meet a shit posting robot in a field that is actually just a head on a stick (laughs) and we'll be all right. Give me a couple more years of like normalcy with my friends. Yeah, please.
0: I, uh, so speaking of, I'm going to try to make a segue. Uh, and the segue is relating to, uh, being old people that were around at the beginning of the internet, perhaps. (laughs) Um, something happened in the mailbag that I think you and I, uh, took to text, and we st- yes. then we just started texting each other about, it and I, I don't know. I kind of want to talk about it.
1: Is that if that's okay? I do too, because it was at the end of an email that we actually kind of had already read through, and then just kind of caught this part, and we were both. It was jarring for both of us in different ways. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This part. And I have to say as a a preface that the person who wrote to us, like everyone who writes to us, had no ill intent. The rest of this email was incredibly kind and thoughtful and... You know, just I know that they are fans of us. So we're not going to say their name because it's not our our goal here to make this person feel bad in talking about this. But we're just really want to talk about the feelings it brought up. And it's not about what the person the person itself who sent it. Yeah, it's about our own neuroses, essentially. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and also, this is something that we talk about a lot as friends. Yeah, I got it in front of me. And and again, got to say. To the person who wrote this, we know that your intent was not to be hurtful or rude or anything. It's just really hit us in a certain way because of who we are. So thank you for writing in, but also, ouch. This is just the last part of it. I love your podcast. It's been so educational for me and brings me a lot of comfort in a time where I'm very stressed out. I think it has also made me realize that the only type of podcast I currently care for is ones where only slightly bitter middle-aged women talk about their weird crushes and their favorite kinds of underwear. I'm only 24 myself, but I still find myself relating very frequently. So what part of that for you? Made you text me in the dead of night.
0: <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, it could have been underwear, but really it was more about the idea that I'm a slightly better middle aged woman.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think yeah. I was
0: ready for that at all.
1: That hit me right in the heart bones. <laughs> like, I did not expect that sentence to really just like hit me like it pierced me like an arrow. Oh, yeah. And for me, it was the bitter the slightly bitter part of it I think that because I'm currently at the happiest moment of my life and I don't think I sound bitter because bitterness to me might mean something different than it means to this person but I don't think of myself as bitter and that that really shocked me that that could be how I'm coming across
0: (laughs) I don't think that bitter applies Uh, that's just my me personally I don't think bitter applies to you necessarily i don't think yeah i think bitter is like a much meaner nastier kind of thing where if i was bitter i would be sitting around being like i have contempt for these people and i hate them and i wish they would die fuck them right you know i mean for me i think just not liking the term joggers is not bitter necessarily
1: right? <laughs> I don't know if I'm wrong about that I don't um, think you are because that's how I feel too and I think we we live in a culture what's really more you know maybe it helps me metabolize this in order you know to to kind of blow it up a little bit into a macro sense instead of a micro sense but that feeling for me is also that we're not accustomed to hearing women's opinions yes in our culture unless they're framed as decidedly positive or decidedly negative or specifically angry or extremely happy. Like we're not used to just hearing. And again, in a broad cultural sense, women talking about their lives without needing an input on it. (laughs) So I'm happy that we're doing that, but I know that it's foreign to a lot of people to hear this and it might, you might have to, you know, you're using the tools that you have in the toolbox of how you're, ingesting that information but for us it's not bitter um i don't think we're bitter i think we're pretty joyful people who have a lot to say and have a lot of opinions and are able to level you know some some barbs at ourselves that are in the moment it's not something we carry around with us plus we're funny Like part of part of what we're doing here. And again, I do not want any animosity for the person who wrote this to to come out of comments or any part of this because they are lovely. Um, but I think it's also part of the the thing that we're dealing with right now, which is that it's. We're putting our voices out into the world and it breeds familiarity uh, that, you know, we're right in your ears and we're talking honestly and truthfully about ourselves. And that breeds a familiarity that I think we're just not accustomed to. Um, So I, I get it. I get it.
0: Yeah, and I and I was like, I was going. I mean, there was a moment where I was like, "Oh my God, are we bitter?" In uh, that uh, Carrie Bradshaw kind of question, I'm like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> are we bitter?" Um, and I'm like, "No, I don't feel bitter at all." No, um, I feel like like you said, and I know you, and I feel like you are generally a pretty happy person, and you've got a lot of good stuff going on. Obviously, you just started a job, you were you're a showrunner, and you have a book coming out. That's pretty great. And, and so I don't know. I think it was kind of jarring because I don't think I see you as bitter. Um, right. But for me. I will say that the middle aged part <laughs> was quite a stunner. And I think this is a hundred percent my shit where I, I just think as I'm my age, I just had a birthday not too long ago. Um, and I'm not hung up on my age whatsoever. Right. Like I'm very comfortable with being who I am. I don't feel the need to, um, be cool. I feel like I can be age appropriate. I'm not, I'm not threatened by the idea that I'm in my forties, but the term middle age is also very weird to me because, uh, I remember like a couple years ago I was on Twitter speaking of, and I said something, I made some sort of joke about middle age in reference to myself. And I have a friend who is about 10 years older than me. She's in her early to mid fifties. And she Told me, like she scolded me and said, You're not middle-aged. And I was like, Okay, I was assuming that middle age meant if the average life expectancy is like 80, 90 years old, oh, and yeah. you're like 45, you're middle-aged because you're literally middle, right? Yeah. Of life. But I think that term also has meant sort of in the culture that we're in that, you know, you're 50, you're 60. That's yep. middle age, which I often am like, I'm confused by it all, to be honest, because I'm like, you know, well, then if you're 60 and you're middle age, then when are you a senior citizen? Is it 80? Exactly. Or like if you qualify for your Social Security, like aren't you a senior citizen? If you can get a senior citizens discount, you're a senior. You're no longer Ooh. middle age.
1: Look, if I get a free popcorn in a movie theater, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a senior citizen, even if it happens tomorrow. I will claim it. I've got enough gray hair that if someone wants to give me a free popcorn because I'm old, knock yourself out.
0: There are times where I'm getting somebody sliding me an extra pickle like (laughs) when I'm doing takeout and I'm like, what's this about? Is this because I'm old? What's going on here? But it does. It is jarring, I think, especially since the the person who wrote in gave their age, which did not help, by the way. <laughs> that I was like, oh, wow, we are a lot older than them. We're double their age,
1: essentially.
0: <laughs> We're almost double their age. Right. But it just kind of made me stop to think, like, you know, okay, like now uh, somebody who's twice as young as I am thinks that I'm middle aged. Right. And does that mean that I'm middle aged? Now that if somebody has called me that, then now am I middle aged? And I mean, it's kind of all TBD, to be honest, on whether or not I, actually apply to that term right but the feeling is definitely like oh wow um because you know i i work with a lot of young people at Mm -hmm. my job and um i'm definitely in those twitter streets seeing young people interact and you know instagram and that kind of thing and and i do feel i feel a, a difference like yeah if I have friends that are in their mid-20s and I, as much as I love them and I feel very like connected to them, I'm older than them and I know it and I feel it.
1: Yes. you know. And truthfully, if you, I, I hear you loud and clear. And if you, the way I kind of tend to define it and feel fine calling myself middle-aged is because if you belonged to a generation and the style of your generation is now a trendy comeback. You're middle aged. Like the minute I saw someone 18 years old wearing a choker, I was like, "Well, that's fucking it." I'm staring down the the cannon of perimenopause, and somebody is cosplaying as me when I was 18. I'm middle aged. I'm middle aged. We've lived long enough to see the shit we liked as kids make a comeback as like an old school trendy thing.
0: Yeah. Oh, like when we talked about H H&M. and I mean, like, yeah. I to me when I went into H and M and saw the fucking Nirvana t-shirts and all that stuff. I was like, Oh, like I feel like I'm mm-hmm. definitely, you know, of a certain generation that has aged out of all this. I think to me also, I'm literally seeing young people sort of go through the same motions that I went through. Cause that's, the, I think ultimately that's what it is, is that I'm sitting here going like, I know that I'm older than you because I can literally see myself at your specific age doing exactly what you're doing. Yes, Like, I remember being in film school in my early 20s and kind of discovering films. And, you know, I remember when I first started getting into film. I mean, I'm going to talk about this maybe a little bit um, today in our episode. Like when I started getting into art movies and I started getting into foreign films and that kind of thing. I mean, that was kind of like a big revelation for me. And that was definitely like an early 20s thing for me. I was in college. I was going to, you know, the university movie theaters. I was hanging out with people, you know, getting recommendations from professors. And it was all yep. sort of like, oh, now I'm into French New Wave. And now <laughs> I, I've watched Woody Allen movies. I watched, <laughs> you know, sort of 90s independent cinema. And that was kind of like... What I did in my early 20s and I'm watching it happen now, like especially online where, you know, I see like a 24 year old being like, I just discovered, you know, uh, Anna Karina. And I'm like, yeah, wow. I remember <laughs> that feeling like I remember being 24 and being like, oh, I want to be a French girl yep. in a 60s movie with my, you know, black and white postcard. Pinned to the wall and my like dried flowers and my blonde furniture and my giant white billowy
1: tunics with my
0: you know cigarette pants yeah I I was like oh I want to do that
1: right I feel you so hard and I, I can't I can't help but think about how when I was a teenager when I was 15 16 and I went to like you know the 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 head shop in the mall you know every every mall had one and i bought a led zeppelin poster and hung it up and i was like so excited because i just discovered led zeppelin and i was like they're fucking great like they used to play a stairway to heaven at my like eighth grade dances and shit like that but i actually discovered like the rest of their music when i was a teenager and i remember distinctly being on a phone call with my with my aunt and being like oh my god it's so cool like I just, you know, I've been listening to like um Led Zeppelin Four, you know, the one like it doesn't say four on the cover. It says and her just cutting me off and being like, I've seen them live like five times. Like that was my music growing up. <laughs> like she would do that to me constantly, where I would be like infatuated with the sixties and seventies. And she'd be like, um, I saw Rocky Horror on stage with tim curry in the original production and she would just like blow my fucking mind i'm like oh because when you discover something you think you are literally the person who discovered it
0: exactly and it's not true
1: so i now feel about like i felt as a teenager about the 60s and 70s the way teenagers feel now and you know young adults feel now about the 90s and it is jarring and that's why i think middle-aged is fitting but let us call ourselves that (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: It just simply stings when somebody else Tells you that you're (laughs) middle-aged And bitter And, uh, you know, but I... I do think it's healthy, though, to have discussed it because I like I think I texted you when I saw the email and I was like, damn, girl, what the fuck? And you were like, <laughs> wow. Um, and it just made us sort of talk about it like amongst yes. us, whether or not we're middle aged women or not, like as women of our uh, particular age, I-, I think the worst thing that could have happened was that we both pretended that it didn't exist. And then we right. just continued to believe that we are like spry 21 uh, year olds. <laughs> traipsing around the world with you know our perfect knees and our perfect
1: skin and you know like i am someone who gives herself blister from blisters from her heating pad so i cannot claim spry or youth in any way and i know it and it's fine it's fine it's almost like that that moment when um when your gynecologist first like very casually uses the term geriatric eggs yes and you're like 32 and you're like I'm sorry what and she's like well technically you have like geriatric eggs and I'm like did you need to say that knowing that I don't want to do anything with these eggs and I've never wanted to do anything with these eggs you feel the need to tell me my <laughs> eggs are geriatric oh yeah it's coming for you it's coming yeah. for if you haven't experienced it yet it's coming for you because it is a jarring moment where I'm like I don't I definitely don't want to think of myself as geriatric. I know that that is a very different place to be. But middle-aged, it's nothing to be afraid of. And it's definitely an assignation. But, you know, let people decide for themselves what they are. Because I don't think we're old even. I don't even think we're like, I know I feel old, but I know we are not old. And I think that, you know, we kind of understand our place in life and we're in our prime.
0: Yeah. I think the foolishness of being young for me was... Cause I, I, I often joke about this, which is that I felt like I was 80 years old when I was in middle school. Like right. obviously I was having crushes on ghosts, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's funny because now there was a lot of stuff that I think that I thought I was too old for that. I was actually not too old for whatsoever. Like, yes. and that things change so much when you turn 40 in that, for me, I feel like the best part of being 40 is really just sort of like I get to fucking relax about the the amp up to 40 because so yep. much of, of, of what we've been told is that you have to fucking be like the most successful boss bitch by the time you turn 40. You have to have family, kids, house, all this stuff. You have to have a fucking perfect curated lifestyle brand that looks good on the Internet. And then when I turned 40, I was like, oh. Okay, well fuck it. Like who cares now? Like I don't care about mm-hmm. being young. I don't care that I didn't do all this shit. It literally you just it's another fucking day.
1: Yeah. You just live your life in the way that makes sense. Like I've I've lived my life practically backwards. You know, I didn't go to finish college until I was 30, and then I did my master's degree. Then I quit all that. I thought I was on a career track finally. Like, I'm going to be a professor. Nope, you're not. Surprise, you're going to be divorced and moving back to New York and being starting a career as a freelance writer. Like Your life happens as it needs to happen, and there is no particular age designation for when you should or could accomplish something. There are people who get their high school diplomas in their 80s. There are people who start businesses when they're 18. It's all the fucking same.
0: Yes, you can be middle-aged at 12. It doesn't matter. <laughs> honestly if you see a kid wearing four cardigans simply join them in listening to their cab calloway records on their phonograph
1: (laughs) do a soft shoe bat give a bow and walk away from that child they're fine (laughs) well yes I, i i'm glad i'm glad for this email and i'm actually thankful for this email person who wrote it because It did. It did help us have a discussion that I think more and more women are having and more and more people are having about being the age that we are being in our 40s.
0: Yep. And, um, you know, it was a thought experiment that I very much appreciated. So thank you very much. Okay, girl, let's talk about this theme this week, because I'm pretty sure. I mean, we always say this, but we're like, "Oh, um, welcome to the deep recesses of our mind and our friendship with some of these themes." But for some reason, this one is really a joke, like an inside joke that we both like thought of and laughed at.
1: So, what's the what's the theme for this week? Um, our theme for this week is Y2K Prom King and Queen. And we're only discussing movies starring both Toby Maguire and Katie Holmes.
0: <laughs> and there are only two so far. Um why is it funny that we're talking about Toby Maguire and Katie Holmes? Because I really do think that um the Y2K aspect of this is funny because <laughs> they were famous like this I think like late 90s moving into the early 2000s was obviously like a it felt like ch- sort of generally a teen era. You know how like we ha- yes. we go through these periods where there seems to be like a lot of teen entertainment all at once. And um, I think we've talked about this before. It might have been in a bonus episode. It might have been in a very early episode about like um, kind of the late 90s and um, early 2000s and sort of like what was happening culturally with like the boy bands and, you know, kind of
1: like the youth market. Yeah. I mean other stars of this this uh this time include Clea Duval, yes. Josh Hartnett. Yes. <laughs> like the movie The Faculty, if you've ever seen that movie, stars oh, yes. everyone who was popular from this era. <laughs> Kevin
0: Williamson, yes. a big part of it. Uh in fact, that's kind of how Katie Holmes got her start, really was through Dawson's Creek. I think everybody knows that by now. Um a lot of WB shows, it seemed to be like kind of that television moving into film because i think initially when we we were thinking about this theme it initially was about katie holmes because we were like katie holmes was in like a lot of movies that you know a lot of horror stuff that was happening like in the late 90s um and then we were like wait a minute she's been in two movies with toby Maguire, and toby Maguire is actually that person too he's almost like the male version of katie holmes where you know he started out in you know some a smattering of kind of like side character roles and then, you know, obviously in my movie it was kind of his like big role and then he moved into like bigger movies and then was Spider-Man and you're just kind of like, okay, so here's like these two young people that were kind of like at the height of their fame at the same time and it happened to be during like the late 90s, early 2000s (laughs) and how are they in two movies together? Um, It's great and we want to, they're
1: prom king and queen. (laughs) They are the prom king and queen and I want to know if they talk about it when they go to lunch with their children and part (laughs) of that and part of the
0: joke about that for me is that um they they play they were much older especially toby mcguire i mean he was playing like young people in his 20s it's kind of that sissy spacek thing too where you're like um here are two actors who were playing like high schoolers when they were like in their 20s and that's just kind of a funny concept it's definitely about nostalgia and as we saw with the bracket, I think a lot of people have nostalgia for this period of time, Mm -hmm. AKA cruel intentions. So, um, I'm hoping that you enjoy this little
1: journey. We're going to go on today. I'm curious. What were you doing in the year 2000? (laughs) What were you doing for Y2K?
0: For the actual dawn of Y2K? I think I was, um, I was in my apartment with April, my friend, April that I've talked about, um, many times on this podcast. And I remember, We were we stayed up. We were in the habit at this time of staying up literally until like seven or eight in the morning. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we wanted to get Burger King breakfast, which is kind of gnarly. But we were like, they're not going to serve this breakfast until 6
1: a.m. We must stay up all night. And they're gonna stop serving it at like seven AM. So we have to hit that window.
0: (laughs) Let's change our entire biorhythmic schedule for fucking shitty breakfast, right? For some
1: French toast sticks that are goddamn delicious, I guess. They are. Oh, don't even get me started (laughs) on a croissant witch. My favorite airport food. I miss it. I only eat it in airports and I love it.
0: My God, love it. Um, when the dawn of Y2K happened, April and I were in my apartment in Atlanta. And we, I remember we said, we need to see, like, what's the first city that's gonna experience Y2K? And we were like, it's Sydney, Australia. Let's turn on the news and see if Sydney, Australia goes dark at the dawn. You know, because you know, there was that whole stress. The stress of Y two K was huge, man. Like everybody was like, "Yo, it's time to hide your money, pull it out of the (laughs) the banks, put it in the mattress." Like the computers are simply going to fail. Those fucking computer heads on wheelbarrows are going to take over. Like we're fucked.
1: (laughs) The event horizon. (laughs) Yeah, it was. It's a
0: true event horizon. And April and I, being stupid, we we were like these like stupid twenty year olds. We were like, like let's get the jump on this Y2K (laughs) thing and just see what happens with Australia. And then it was that thing where like they would show Australia five minutes after midnight, lights are still on. Then 30 minutes, lights are still on. People are still going to work. The trains are running. And then we were like, okay, what about Asia? They'd show Asia, nothing going on. And then it was like, it was, you know, basically every time zone that reached midnight, everything was, Pretty much the same, and we were like, "Okay, yep. so it's not the apocalypse, huh? Why do we stress out about that? Let's go get breakfast." That that was the little Y two K moment for me. What about you?
1: I was. I love that. By the way, uh, you are like, <laughs> so "Let's dumb. see if it goes dark. We're still going to get breakfast. Because even if it goes dark, we got a couple hours that we can. We got a little bit of time. Long as they don't fuck with that breakfast." Oh, my God. I know I was I was not concerned about it at all. Um, In the year 2000, I was ending my time in like the San Francisco Bay Area. I was like a month away from moving back to New York. And, you know, then a year later, fucking September 11th happened. So I'm like, this is more what we should have been worried about. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, 99, I was in I was in a bar in San Francisco I was so drunk that I could not even tell you what happened at midnight. I don't even like Y2K could have actually happened and I would not have known. (laughs) You were like. i mean i remember like buying a fucking burrito and like going back <laughs> to my friend's house and sleeping on the floor i did not care i'm like if it's gonna happen guess what i have no money to take out of the bank exactly i have no personal belongings my landlord can go get fucked i don't know what you want me to do if it happens it goddamn happens i was working at a gloria jeans coffee shop in a mall <laughs> like what do you want from me yeah
0: well, I'm thrilled that nothing major happened uh, to yes. be quite honest. And I am on the hunt for Y2K themed clothing by the way. I do that's like one thing I do love about it was just sort of like the marketing and the yes. uh, the merch that came out of Y2K and I'm like, "Yo, I would fucking rock a Y2K t-shirt today." So, I'm always that's like a Google alert I have is like Y2K merchandise. That's awesome. <laughs> much a much bigger deal than what actually happened. But it's also good because yeah you know we needed our money for the burger king breakfast and the drinks so and
1: look maybe if y2k had happened we wouldn't all be searing our eyeballs on twitter all day every day we would have realized that computers could harm us and learned a fucking lesson but we didn't and we're here so hello
0: (laughs) i know um (laughs) god that's depressing uh well are you going first this week
1: yeah, I'm going first this week. Ooh, oh, my So we can God. get right on into these movies. Uh, my film for our theme of Y2K Prom King and Queen is directed by Curtis Hanson. It was released in the year 2000. And it is Wonder Boys. Now that is a big trunk. It holds a tuba, a suitcase, a dead dog, and a garment bag almost perfectly. Yeah, that's just what they used to say in the ads. This movie was based on a novel by Michael Chabin, and the screenplay was written by uh, Steve Cloves. Uh, but the director, the director Curtis Hansen, is probably known best for L.A. Confidential. Uh, massive, massive film of his. Like he's done plenty of other films, but that's, I think, the most well-known movie of his. And this is an interesting choice for someone who directed L.A. Confidential, because mm-hmm. this is a very... It's an indie film at heart that has a very celebrity-filled cast, which is just a very 2000-y thing as well. When, like, you know, when actors kind of realized, oh, wait, these indie movies might not pay as much, but this is where you get all your awards from. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was a, a moment. So this is a film about uh, Grady Tripp, who's played by Michael Douglas. He's a novelist who had a very popular book come out seven years ago. He has since started teaching uh, at college. Uh, Toby McGuire and Katie Holmes are his students, a couple of his students. Katie Holmes also lives with him, which is strange. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get into that. But he, <laughs> we're, we're meeting Grady Tripp on a day when his wife has left him. His editor has shown up for a book festival expecting to see his new work. His car that was sold to him by a friend was apparently stolen from somebody else who's now like after him <laughs> and his girlfriend who he's been having an affair with who, who also happens to be the chancellor of the school sarah gaskell who's played by frances mcdormand uh frances mcdormand is pregnant and so this is all <laughs> happening on the same day at the, the the midst of this uh or the beginning of this book festival this author festival that's happening at this college michael douglas is high on pot the whole movie Essentially, <laughs> uh, he's trying to help Toby McGuire through some writing issues and, and some personal issues. Um, but that's essentially what the movie is about, is all of these h- things happening to this man on the same day. And I have not seen this movie s- since it came out, I think. Maybe I saw it once after that, but it came out in 2000. It's been 21 years. You know, I haven't yeah. seen it. And, I never saw um, it. This was a first watch for me. Yeah, That's why I want to hear your, your opinion on it, because I remembered being just so fascinated by this movie and I loved it. And I still think it's a great film.
0: Yeah, I do too. I actually really like it. Um, it, To me, it was that kind of thing where they call it sleepers. It's basically a term. I don't even think they use them anymore, but basically, a term for a, a movie that was sort of released quietly and didn't maybe make a big impression with a lot of people. A lot of times there it's because of marketing people at studios that just like don't know how to market a movie. And so they just mm-hmm. kind of quietly release it and then just put it in a video store and then people kind of discover it later. I actually think it's what's happening now with Wonder Boys because I see it a lot on um vod like i see it on amazon and um you know for rental on like streaming sites and stuff and before we did the planning for this episode uh, i think we talked about adding the movie simply because i was like yo i see this movie everywhere i remember when it came out i never saw it and i don't know it seems like it would be something i'd like because it's kind of like a it's like a, a dark comedy drama, romance, um and it's about like intellectuals in the northeast, which is yes. always a very appealing subject and about writers, which is also I know a big subject for us too. So, there was just sort of like no reason why I hadn't seen it and then, you know, we decided to add it to the schedule. But yeah, I I actually liked it a lot. Like I I thought it was funny. It kind of reminded me, I got to be honest, Tiny, not totally, but it kind of reminded me of Nobody's Fool. It kind of had that feeling. Yes of here's this guy who's having, like, the worst day of his life, and here are these, <laughs> like, random weird characters in his life that are sort of, like... And it's just this kind of, like, growing snowball of craziness that's happening to him, and, you know, it's it's that kind of movie,
1: right? Exactly. It's hijinks. It is, like, you don't know what's going to happen next, and then everything that happens is weirder than the thing that happened before it. Right. Um, but it is a great story. It's a very interesting, cool story. And it, it also feels to me like... Um, um, I don't know, it's just it's one of those films that feels like it was probably as fun to make as it is to watch. And it it just evokes this feeling for me of if you're just sitting down on a Saturday, you just want to like chill out on your couch, maybe lay down, take a nap um, and wake up and just watch something chill. This is a great movie for that. <laughs> where you don't have to invest too much, but it is going to keep you entertained and the story is compelling. Uh, and I I loved it. I think all of the performances are great. Toby Maguire's character is James Lear. And James <laughs> Lear is like this catatonically depressed student who just so happens to be a brilliant writer, come to find out, and also the biggest liar anyone has ever met. <laughs>
0: oh, exactly. And also, gotta say... Um Big classic movie fan, which, of course, you know, yep. definitely pulled me in. I was like, oh, here's this college kid who's a weird writer who also watches Tyrone Power movies and knows um, how Gig Young died. I'm like, Ugh, be still my beating heart, I James mean, Lear. My there God. is a
1: scene where James Lear, in front of Robert Downey Jr., who plays uh, Grady's editor, uh, his editor is Terry, Terry Crabtree, and it's almost like a party trick, but you can tell that this is just how his mind works. And James Lear just starts reciting the names of celebrities who have died from drug overdoses and been alcohol overdose in alcohol. And he does it alphabetically and it's just like boop 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 it's this person it's this person it's this person and terry crabtree is fascinated it is great it's a great scene but what what cracks me up he and i both because
0: you know we talk about christian slater being that sort of archetype of like the weirdo uh Mm -hmm. in the back of the classroom that kind of drew you in that would have been like a james lair for me i'm like oh this guy is on some like spooky shit about old
1: movie stars i think i'm in love And he's reading celebrity bios from that era and like, yeah, he is fully in it. But the the thing that cracks me up is how he's perceived by his classmates. Like when you open at the opening of this film, James is finishing reading a story and one of his classmates says... His stories make me want to kill myself. And then <laughs> Grady Tripp is like, let's keep it constructive. And the next, per- next person is like, no, seriously, I don't understand why he does this every week.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. And did you take writing classes when you were in school? Like, do you remember stuff like that?
1: No, I've never taken a single writing class. Wow.
0: Yo, I took one when I was in college, and I, <laughs> God, it is basically exactly like that where people <laughs> are just like, God, I don't get this. This doesn't make any fucking sense. And you're just <laughs> like humiliated. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there's no such thing as constructive criticism for a group of people who are super at a super competitive age yeah. and like fighting tooth and nail for every scrap of recognition they can get. Like, there's no constructive criticism coming out of that.
0: Yeah. And everybody in the class, especially, I mean, it was unclear kind of how old he was. I was assuming probably like 18, 19 years old or something. But, um, It also is that moment, too, where you're that young and you're in a writing class and you literally are just copying like writers that you like. So like everybody in that classroom is like trying to be Hemingway, trying to be like, Mm -hmm. you know, Sylvia Plath or whoever. And, you know, it's just a bunch of like young people that don't really know shit from fuck as you have said in the past and they're just critiquing each other and i was like damn man i remember this
1: it was awful it's so brutal and what's great about this movie is that you've got kind of both ends of the spectrum where you have grady tripp who has been working on a book for seven years and there's a moment which is in the trailer so i don't think it's a spoiler where you see him type on a typewriter the number is 261 and he's like yeah you know i've been working on this book for a while and it kind of ballooned up to 250 pages and then he types 261 and then says and then it got a little bit bigger than that and then he types types another one so he's has a 2500 page book that he's been working on for seven years that is not done single spaced by the way somebody points that out (laughs) katie holmes points that out (laughs) <laughs> or they might be Robert Downey Jr., but yes, somebody points that out. And he is, like, petrified because his editor, who he picks up at the airport, and we will talk about that scene as well, his editor is, like, excited because he's like, you keep telling me you're almost done. And Grady's like, yeah, I'm almost done. And then he's got this, like, boxes full of book <laughs> that are just yeah. nowhere near being done. And on the flip side of that, you have this sullen, depressed like catatonic, practically catatonic teenager who is an astoundingly good writer, as we come to find out. And he's being taught by someone who cannot write anymore (laughs) in a way that is cohesive or comprehensive. I love that. I love that juxtaposition. I love that dichotomy.
0: Yeah, I was wondering, because as a writer, I was thinking, wow, Daniel probably has a lot to say about that. Because, you know, of that moment where he talks about, like there are moments where Grady is basically like, I don't believe in writer's block. I think he said that um, yep. at one point point. Uh, and everyone's like, clearly you wrote like a 2000 <laughs> page. You're just writing through your bullshit. You don't even know what's going on. And to me, I mean, like I know we talked a lot about age at the beginning of this episode, but I was basically like, yeah, that must've been like, as a, like that, that story of sort of like the teacher is the failure and the student is sort of better and, and, brighter than the person that he admires is such an interesting kind of concept like in books and in movies and stuff but as a writer did you like have an anxiety about like that concept of him just sort of having written so many words but they just don't go anywhere and like that feeling of god the last book that i wrote was so awesome and now what like what am i gonna do
1: Yeah, like the last book he wrote, by the way, is called was his first book was called or the book that was very well, well known was called The Arsonist's Daughter, which is such a movie, such a spot on movie note about how novels are named. Yeah, but I didn't you know, it's strange. And I think this is potentially why I didn't I haven't taken any writing courses and um, I didn't really have like an attack of seeing that because. I don't think you can teach writing. And I know that's a controversial statement, potentially, but I don't think that I have ever felt that kind of pressure in writing because it was never the only thing i was doing and i have a lot of creative outlets so it never felt like well i don't feel like writing today i'm fucked it's more like well i don't feel like writing today i'll knit something or i'll you know i'll make a fucking tissue holder or like whatever i'll i'll do other things um so i never allowed myself to be blocked creatively because i didn't put all my eggs in one basket but what really did give me a little bit of anxiety was seeing this James Lear character be so depressed and so like fed up with life because he felt like he was as worthless as people were telling him he was. And he didn't believe in his own writing. That was hard for me because I think that happens a lot where people stifle themselves and silence themselves because the world is telling them you're weird or this isn't what we want to read. And if somebody doesn't want to read it, it doesn't mean you shouldn't write it. <laughs> you know, so that 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 hurt that hurt a lot to see that like so expertly portrayed in, in film.
0: And then, you know, what's really interesting about the Katie Holmes character is that Katie Holmes is very reverent towards Grady. Almost. OK, first of all, it is weird that she's living with him. Like I was yeah. like, wow, that's strange. To be honest, at the beginning of the film, when they mentioned that, I just assumed that they were in a romance. I was like, oh, uh, Katie Holmes is dating Michael Douglas. Like, uh, is it going to be like one of these movies? Mm -hmm. But as it turns out, that's not the case. She, I think, is in that position where she's like, oh, my God, I like really admire this older man. And I think he's brilliant. And I want to you know, start a romance with him and he's like the person that's like, no, not interested. And, you know, it's because he's obviously like, as we find out, in love with the Francis McDormand character. But that is something that you very rarely see, by the way, you very rarely see that middle aged professor guy turn down a young
1: student you know exactly i appreciate that shit let's just say that and turn her down and be in love with someone who's age appropriate
0: (laughs) yes my god i was thrilled by that and i know that's like sad but i was thrilled
1: (laughs) no i don't think it's bad at all because you're right it's so rare 21 years later it's still rare (laughs) <laughs> to see that and i love that that character of sarah gaskell who's the chancellor of the school uh was played by Frances mcdormand who is just always such a bright light gem of an actor for me love uh, and she played the fuck out of that role where she's like you know i'm pregnant and uh that's what's up and i don't know what we should do about it but i'm not going to wait around for you to make a goddamn decision so <laughs> you know i might do it on my own um but i love seeing a woman in flux in that way who's like i've got these two men who are not doing it for me and i'm prepared to go it alone if i need to because like she's recognizing her own power and her own direction in that and i really love that like i just love seeing that so She's always fantastic, but she was particularly great in this role. And her husband is played by Richard Thomas. Good night, John boy, if that means anything to anyone. (laughs) And Richard Thomas just so happens to be Grady's boss. He heads up the English department. So it's a very convoluted thing that I think what also gets me about this film now is now that I've been through college is that it was so indicative of what academia is like at that level when it comes to like... I don't know if this professor really knows what the fuck they're talking about, but they have tenure, so I don't know. <laughs> like, they're not going anywhere.
0: <laughs> yeah, and all the reviews that I read, like the original reviews when the fir- the movie first came out, that was kind of the biggest thing that I kept seeing was that everybody was like, this is exactly what academia is. Like, they, they nailed it. And yeah, I mean, having been to college, I gotta be honest, I was not, uh, you know, my college was sort of like not as... Um, not a, that that world seemed very baked in with like students living with professors and you know it's kind of that like northeastern you know, mm-hmm. sort of preppy ish, like, you know, intellectual kind of university environment. Right. Right. Um, like I love Michael Douglas's house. Oh, yes. it's like, I watched the movie for that fucking house with those giant windows and all the wood and
1: everything. And it takes place in Philly, it takes place in Philadelphia. Yeah, so yeah. And yeah.
0: so, my college experience was way less sort of that. Um, But it's fascinating because it was that thing of like, uh, I remember worshiping professors, certainly. Yes. But not hanging out with them, I guess, in that way.
1: Not living with them or trying to date them. <laughs>
0: definitely not. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you, though, about the Robert Downey Jr. character, because we've talked about Robert Downey Jr.'s thing that he does mm-hmm. in like all of his movies, uh, which is essentially be- what he is in this movie, too. He's like definitely his Robert Downey Jr. self. But he, for, for whatever reason... It's a little different. And and for some reason, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed him being himself in this role. Um, But I know that he has a lot going on in this movie as a character.
1: And it's baked into the character, which I find fascinating, too, because for something that came out in 2000, it was kind of wild at that point, I think, to see someone who was not necessarily nailing down their sexuality. As a yeah. character, and was very fluid, very sexually fluid, and um, when he arrives and at the airport and Grady is picking him up, uh, he just so ha- Terry Crabtree just so happens to have met uh, a beautiful woman on the plane, and the first thing Grady says is like, "That is a transvestite, right?" And he's like, "Yeah," and they're using the term for the time, which is you know someone who dresses in alternate gender clothing. Um, so they weren't using the the umbrella term we use now of trans. And it wasn't said as a slight. It was just kind of like, yeah, that's Terry. That's Terry all over. Terry's sexual life is very diverse. Right. <laughs> and so they don't expressly land on him being gay. Um, I think he's he's I feel like this character would identify as queer and he's fine with it. And I think that's why his Robert Downey Jr.ness is kind of more more appreciative in this film because he's got he's kind of one of the lighter characters in this, not because there's no depth to the character, but because his approach and his boyishness is a part of what makes this character feel more more joyful.
0: Um, The one part, though, that really like stuck out to me, too, about the person that he meets on the plane is when Grady is driving her home yes. and she starts removing her makeup and her wig and everything because she's going home
1: to and her family and she says that she yeah. says, he calls her Antonia and she's like it's Anthony now that I'm home right which is heartbreaking in, in heartbreaking. its own way you know yeah. like it's really a beautiful scene
0: yeah that's a that's real I mean that's a real scene to me and you know they didn't have to have that in the movie but they did right. and you know I think that's just an interesting choice um but yeah, I, I I, this movie was like it, I mean, I kept I keep saying nobody's fool in the sense that it does feel like that vibe of just sort of like, oh, here are these people in a town and they're mm-hmm. all kind of characters and it's all kind of set around. There's a there's some dog trauma, have to say it like there is some
1: dog trauma in this film. <laughs> Poe, the blind dog. There is oh. some po some, some po trauma in this film. <laughs> yeah, they build it into the hijinks, I got to say, but it ain't, yeah, fr- it ain't pretty.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it is. It that's kind of what it. Did remind me of nobody's fool in that way. Just sort of like, oh, here's the here's a a, a sample of a town. There's a kind of grumpyish guy in the center of it, and you know his life is kind of a ridiculous farce, but. <laughs> Hopefully it gets back on track. And, you know, like, I love that.
1: That's that's a fun type of movie to watch. I was really happy to see that um, this movie was as good as I remembered it being all around.
0: Yeah. Um, It felt kind of cozy. And I I appreciate that so much. And yeah, I'm I'm so glad you picked it. I'm so glad it gave me the opportunity to finally see it. And, you know, when it comes down to it with Michael Douglas, too, you know, I think a lot of people remember him, especially in the 90s, like leading up to something like this. Um, they remember him a lot for his like erotic thrillers or his like mm-hmm. tense dramas. And you forget that he can actually be like kind of, you know, a warm like he can play this type of character, like a professor. Um and, you know, I, I, I appreciated that as well. I liked his like little professor glasses that he kept like, you know, yeah. wearing on and off. Uh,
1: and his scarves. In his bathroom. And he writes in this pink bathroom and wears these big wool scarves. And <laughs> yeah. It's almost like we talked about last week with, with, you know, Bruce Stern playing that kind of stern character, but you put it in a comedic setting and suddenly it's a different it's a different ball game.
0: Yeah. It's a different exactly.
1: way of acting for them. So I like that too.
0: Yeah. Good
1: choice. So glad you picked it. Thanks. Your pick is fire.
0: Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. (laughs) Um, All right. So my movie for this week for the theme, Y2K Prom King and Queen, is a movie from 1997. It was based on a book of the same name that was written by Rick Moody. It is called The Ice Storm and it was directed by Ang Lee
1: are you watching this watching what nixon doofus he's a liar calm down i wasn't in on it it was 1973 and the climate was changing Care to play it's strictly volunteer of
0: course a key party the men put their car keys in a bowl and at the end of the evening the women line up and fish them out so in 1997 when this movie came out i drove to athens georgia at, because I was living in Atlanta at the time with my friend April Ledbetter, who, by the way, I have to say, she owns this, she co-owns this uh, incredible uh, record label called Dust Digital with her <sighs> husband Lance. I've known them forever. But April and I, in 97 drove to Athens, which is about like an hour and a half away from Atlanta. And we went to the university of Georgia's student movie theater to see this movie. And I totally went in blind. Um, I had never seen an Angley movie before. I had never even heard of this movie before. And at the time, um, this was like one of the first art films that I remember seeing in a movie theater, like on my own, you know, with like friends. And, um, I sort of only had a vague idea of what art film was. I mean, and ultimately it's interesting because it became kind of like a big passion of mine, yeah. especially when I was in undergrad film school in the late nineties. So it just was like a good era to be watching art films or like indie cinema. Right. Mm-hmm. So the ice storm is about two families that are living in the same upper middle-class community in this town called New Canaan, Mm -hmm. Connecticut, as (laughs) as the train conductor says, or the train guy, he says Connecticut. I've never been to Connecticut, so I don't know what New Canaan's like, but it's um, Thanksgiving break in the year 1973. And there is this giant storm on the horizon for that weekend where basically it rains a bunch and then it just immediately freezes. Right. So it's causing this like great big ice storm which is obviously the name of the movie. So these two families are comprised of this, like, really incredible ensemble cast of characters. So there's the Hoods, who are... Kevin Klein and Joan Allen, who play Ben and Elena. And their kids are Paul and Wendy, who are played by Toby McGuire and Christina Ricci. And then there's the Carvers, who are played by Sigourney Weaver and Jamie Sheridan as the parents. And then their kids are Sandy and Mikey, who are played by Elijah Wood and Adam Han Bird. And he was the little man Tate in little man Tate. Um, And basically we see through these two families the ways in which they are sort of navigating the world during a very culturally tumultuous time right? And the film is narrated by the Tobey Maguire character who is coming home for Thanksgiving from this private school in New York City that he attends. And, you know, this was essentially the ice storm was Tobey Maguire's kind of first big role. And he was in his early 20s playing a 16-year-old, like I think I mentioned before. And the narration that he gives in the film is kind of set inside the world of this comic book that he's reading on the train, which is the fantastic four. And um, unfortunately I have like zero knowledge of comic books, but essentially what, he's saying in the narration is that the fantastic four is a family and just like all families it's a powerful bond but it's also very complex and complicated and he kind of pops in and out of the story because he's away at school um for most of it where he's kind of like smoking weed and like learning philosophy and he's competing with his roommate who's played by david Crumholtz, by the way whom i love He's such a good actor, Uh, plays a lot of like weird guys. I love it. Um, And then the him and his roommate are kind of like fighting for the attention of this like beautiful rich girl uh, who is played by Katie Holmes. And this was her first movie. And her character is named Libbitz,
1: which is like a (laughs) a
0: running joke in the movie where he says Libbitz and everyone's like, who is named (laughs) Libbitz?
1: And I have to say I've never heard that name before either. So I was Ever. asking. And I like that in, in both of the, both of our films, which I didn't mention in my film, but they're they're friends. Like they're 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 friends who um, you know, in one film, this one, he wants to be more than friends, but in the in Wonder Boys, he they're content to be just friends and know kind of about each other. So I like yeah. seeing them play these characters that don't necessarily have to be romantic.
0: Yeah, they're they're definitely connected. They interact in both of these movies. But The Ice Storm really is rooted in this specific time and place where it's set. And there's actually this really great YouTube video that I will definitely post a link to where um Charlie Rose is interviewing Ang Lee and James Seamus, who was the producer and the screenwriter for The Ice Storm. You know, him and Angley were frequent collaborators. They worked on a lot of stuff together. And it's the two of them with Rick Moody, who was the author of the original book. And um, there's this amazing quote that James Sheamus says in the interview with Charlie Rose, which is, and this is a quote from him, there is something essentially cinematic about how in." embarrassing 1973 is in particular for Americans. And I think that he's referencing the idea that we were like smack dab in the middle of the Watergate scandal and America's situation in Vietnam, which funnily enough is something that we're just reminded of all the time in the film by the Christina Ricci character, who's essentially this kind of like 14 year old rabble rouser. um, Yeah. And she's going around reminding like her parents and everybody of kind of the political implications of things that are happening around them during this time. And like, I got to tell you, man, that that Thanksgiving grace that she gives is epic, like iconic
1: in the truest (laughs) sense of that word.
0: (laughs) I know. I was like, that girl has her head on straight. My God. Um, And Here's the thing, too. Additionally, and I think that this is the main focus of the film. We were also in the midst of the sexual revolution and second wave feminism. And I think that this informs almost kind of every single character in this film. Absolutely. When I was preparing for this episode, you know, I was watching this Charlie Rose thing and I also was reading the Roger Ebert review of the ice storm when it when it came out. And he makes this point, which I think really crystallized the beats of the story for me, which is, you know, because I was obviously not alive in 1973. um, But Roger Ebert says the early 70s were a time when the social revolution of the 1960s had seeped down or up into the yuppie classes who wanted to be with it and supplemented their martinis with reefer
1: right oh my god is that about 1973
0: or 2021 that's the ice storm to a t like the like the characters in this film these families they're rich people in modern homes they're sending their children to elite private schools they're going to couples therapy um but they're also talking about deep throat Mm -hmm. both the movie and the person (laughs) obviously because watergate right they're having affairs like joan allen's character is like she's like kind of out one day and she's scanning this table of books and she's kind of like looking at a bunch of stuff that's on the table and it's like Erica Jong's Fear of Flying is Mm -hmm. on it. Um, You know, Sigourney Weaver, her character is like reading Philip Roth in bed. And they're also like at this time having a lot of kind of like conversations about sex and they're having these sort of like lectures with their children. Very awkward. Or with children, period. Yeah. Who are experimenting with their own sexuality. And they're all like very strange lectures um mm-hmm. where Kevin Klein is basically like he's he's driving um his son, the Toby McGuire character home from the bus station or I'm sorry the train station, and he starts like trying to have a conversation about masturbation with him, and I think his biggest point was that he was like, "You should never jerk off in the shower because it wastes water." <laughs> And I'm like, And okay. not on the linens. <laughs> and not on the linens. So it's like he's saying, like, oh, it's okay that you do these things, but, you know, just, you know, have some grace about it or whatever. And I'm like, that's an interesting take.
1: I love this Ben Hood character. I got to say that, like, the reason I saw this film, because, you know, 97 was also a time when I wasn't really hip to a lot of indie films and stuff like that. But yeah, I... Have had a crush on Kevin Klein since I saw a fish called Wanda. <laughs> How could and you not? Like, everyone if he's it. in it. I'm seeing it. And what is hilarious to me about Kevin Klein in this film is that his character Ben is so boring when he talks that almost everyone in his life wants him to shut up. It is so I know. funny.
0: I know. There's a. I'm going to talk about that part with him and Sigourney Weaver in just a second. But it's that thing where, like, yes. yeah, he starts off with an ascot and he's very like. It's funny because he seems really buttoned up. I mean, essentially he has this kind of um hoity-toityness to his voice when he speaks. And um you can tell that he's probably coming from this like older generation that now is in the midst of this like sexual revolution where he's sort of like, "Oh, well now we're talking about porn movies like in, you know, mixed company and I'm talking to my son about uh, you know, masturbation, but I can't help but be like the 50s guy with, like, you know, the very, like, straight and narrow, you know? And,
1: and his wife is, like, wearing a crochet doily couch thing as a vest. Like, oh they are that definitely out of step at a time a little bit.
0: Oh, a little bit. Yeah, no kidding. And honestly, like, the other kind of sexual lecture in the film that is mind-blowing is when Sigourney Weaver catches Christina Ricci. Now, this is, like, Ben and Elena's daughter So the neighbor mom catches Christina Ricci and Sigourney Weaver's son in their bathroom, kind of doing the whole like, if I show you mine, you show me yours thing. And the way that Sigourney Weaver like snatches Christina Ricci and then starts like evoking Margaret Mead, (laughs) like coming of age in Samoa, fucking, you know, like this idea that we're sending our children out into the world. You know, it's like this total like ridiculous Speech and Christina Ricci's like, What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of like mind blowing to me. And also, like, again, it's this new era where in any other era before this, you would have taken that child, sent her to boarding school, uh, sent her away because she did this, like egregious, foul, disgusting, immoral thing. But she would have now... had like a
1: clitorectomy, her nipples would have yeah. been cut off. Like yeah. <laughs> get this kid as far away from sex as possible.
0: Exactly. And instead we're now we're having these like you know, anthropological conversations with with the children about discovering their own sexuality. It's very interesting.
1: And I I do think it was interesting for this film to focus on the upper middle class white families, because if this had been a middle class black family or at truly any class level of black family in the 1970s and saw their children playing, if I show you mine, you show me yours. That child would have been picked up and tossed out the door like Jazzy Jeff, like just (laughs) 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 you are never allowed to come in this house again. I don't want to know you.
0: (laughs) Right. And that, I think, is the most important point, is the idea that these are people who are of the suburbs, like they are upper middle class living in the white suburbs they are finally discovering the revolution that had already been going on since the 60s. And now sort of like, again, like Roger Ebert says, it's trickled down or trickled up into their class, into their neighborhood. And it's fascinating because they kind of have like this weird vibe to it. Like they, they're they curious, but they're also like proper. So yeah. there's this weird kind of dichotomy there. And one of the biggest moments of the film revolves around a key party that's hosted in the neighborhood by one of their friends who was played by Allison Janney, who looks fucking incredible in that dress. (laughs) Phenomenal. Best look ever. I was like, her hair is like pinned back. She's got that flowy polka dot dress and she's
1: in her like fancy colonial house. It's so incredible. I hope one day there is like a Met gala exhibit of, all of Allison Janney's costumes throughout the ages because her and I, Tanya, her and Drop Dead Gorgeous, her in this film, like, just give us the costumes, put them on some mannequins, let us weep communally about how great she is.
0: I mean, she is... One of the best actresses, but she also is the, one of the best character actresses ever because she gets to play like weird, quirky characters and awesome outfits. And I'm like, man, what a what a fucking career. I would love to be that if I was an actor, I would definitely be like an Allison Janney. I would aspire to that. Yes. Um, but here she is in this movie having a key party. Right. I think you guys know what a key party is. I don't have to explain it. It seems so hokey and corny now. But, Explain you know, it anyway. It was the thing. <laughs> Essentially, it's a party game where people come into the party, put their car keys in a bowl, and at the end of the night, people go into the bowl one by one and pull out a pair of keys and that's who you went home and fucked. That is a key party.
1: I love that you say that like it's the most boring thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> You've been married for 25 years. You're going to go home and fuck somebody else. Who cares? <laughs>
0: Well, you know, but it's that thing where it became kind of like a cliche when talking about this era and especially in this sort of racial class context, because it's like, oh, here's like a bunch of like rich people's parents out in the burbs cheating on their spouses is based on a game that involves Mm -hmm. car keys. And, you know, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the sort of like the foundation of that is actually pretty crazy. But it it, be, it did become this kind of like cliche thing right. about this time. But, you know, infidelity is a big part of this movie, especially, you know, because um, the infidelity is kind of a part of these characters sort of examining their wants and desires, which obviously yes. is a big part of the sexual revolution. And you figure out that Sigourney Weaver's character is having an affair with the Kevin Klein character, but she's basically detached from it and she's also detached from her duties as a mom and a wife and like Mm -hmm. and what we were talking about earlier is that there's a scene where they've just finished having sex and then you know of course kevin klein is talking about his office and golf (laughs) games and doing all the shit and he's talking kind of endlessly and sigourney weaver is basically like "Uh, uh, uh, wait you need to stop she's like i don't want to hear this like i already have a husband Okay, I don't need this stuff. Okay. And he's like, wow, you're actually right about that. This (laughs) is just, we're just having a sex affair. And yeah, I don't get to talk to you about my golf game or whatever. Such a great scene. Yeah, very bold, obviously, for that time. But also, too, you know, with the Joan Allen character, she's sort of adrift as well. And she's trying to figure out her own womanhood. And, you know, she's wearing the doily shirt. Um, She's kind of the opposite. of that of that Sigourney Weaver character where she's very much like, I'm a wife and a mom, and I don't know who I am beyond that. And at the same time, you know, her daughter, Christina Ricci's character, is very bold in her life at her age. I mean, she's supposed to be 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's very bold politically, like we said before, and she's very sexually aware and has been experimenting both with Mikey and Sandy in the basement. Um and it sort of implied that the Elijah Wood character, Mikey, is a stoner. Um, but also Sigourney Weaver, his own mother, says, oh, he's been out of it since the day he was
1: born, Right, <laughs> which is so fucked up. It is because bon- he's not stoned. He's just a very scientifically strangely minded person and to the point where like his dad comes in at once in one scene uh the jamie sheridan character and says you know um you know i'm back and he kind of looks up and he's like you were gone like he just doesn't notice things that other people would find important and he is obsessed with molecules mikey loves molecules it's all he wants to talk about he will freak you the fuck out with some molecule information
0: he's using the molecules to explain like the existence of man it's like he's on one he's deep and i mean honestly like you know it could be that he is simply like on the spectrum or something like that but honestly you know they allude to the fact that he might just be stoned but i i don't think in the movie he ever i never see him smoking weed or anything i think he's just like an intense young man
1: meanwhile His brother is out in the backyard whipping a hibiscus with an actual real leather whip that his mom gives to him to play with instead of a lighter.
0: Yeah, he's blowing up his damn toys on the back porch. I mean, like speaking of intense, like both these sons are intense as fuck. And he and Sandy in particular So, you know, Mikey and Wendy are of the same age and they they go to the same school and they're kind of like, um, you know, fooling around a lot uh, after school. But Sandy, the little brother, is also obsessed with Wendy and he kind of is like always like looking at her with these big eyes and is like basically says he loves her and all this stuff. And, you know, they and they have a little... It plays out in a big way in the movie, but they kind of end up kind of messing around with each other, too. And it's very it's very interesting because it's like, again, it's the parents who are experimenting, but also the children. And you right. can see that this revolution that's happening is like everywhere, like all ages, sort of it's it's in their world in a big way. And, you know, of course, like if you want to get down to brass tacks, it's like the metaphor of ice, you know, and the yeah. storm. um, you know, the notion that we're just like seeing multiple scenes where people are cracking ice out of those like old school mm-hmm. metal ice trays. You know, if, if you want to take those scenes and sort of make the connection that maybe we're talking about the thawing of morality and hang ups and everything in this era. I mean, that's like a it's not lost on me. That's a metaphor <laughs> I, I completely
1: understood. Like, <laughs> ah, look, look, I'm smart. I get it. I get it. <laughs>
0: Um but anyway, I mean at the end of the day, this movie to me uh I haven't seen it in a while and it is still incredible. Just to kind of give you a little bit more information about Ang Lee, like this was his second English language movie cuz he he immigrated from Taiwan in 1978 to attend school in Illinois and he later went to NYU and um he was actually in the same class as Spike Lee and he worked on Spike Lee's thesis film when they were both at NYU together Whoa. and uh, he was a you know gonna go back to Taiwan but he was persuaded to stay in America after he made a short film and he got an agent and the agent was like you should stay in America and make movies and he had made uh, like a kind of a trilogy of these Mandarin language films before he made Sense and Sensibility which is his first English language film you know I think it was like 95 but I will say that I think it's really interesting knowing that this movie is about a very specific moment in American cultural mm-hmm. history, right that an outsider, like an Asian immigrant, was able to make this, like really thoughtful, sort of nuanced film about white people living in America, right? Yeah Because he did not come to the States until '78, so he wasn't even here in '73. And I'm certain. There were many differences between his life up until that point and the lives of these characters that are in this film. Um, but I think in that Charlie Rose interview, he says that that this concept kind of served the movie. You know, it was basically that he has a detachment that made him sort of focus on the characters and their emotions, and it kind of prevented maybe. Um, The sort of, I don't know, like the stylistic kind of pitfalls of making a movie about the 70s in America, because you could honestly make it like Austin Powers gold member where it's just like the 70s are a laughingstock joke of like bell bottoms and fucking bullshit. But, you know, that Ang Lee was not in America during this time and came from Taiwan basically made him kind of approach the material differently well
1: he approached it from the emotional side and the character perspective which is universal and you know can translate across decades and across time um you know these these time frames that we're looking at so I think that was really smart and it made it more of a I think that's why for me it's a classic film because it just you know it evokes a time he's definitely talking about a specific year, a specific moment, but the emotional heft of this film is just everlasting.
0: Yeah. There's, I mean, it is, there's a lot going on in this movie. There's a lot of characters who are um, having their own journeys and discoveries and they're kind of like moving in and out of each other. And that's a really hard task. And even like Rick Moody, the author of the book, he, actually thinks that the movie was in a lot of ways better than his book, because Whoa. he was saying that like Ang Lee was able to kind of remove the 1st personness of the book right. and was able to really like kind of, you know, show the characters and, and, and play with that part of the story. And that in a lot of ways, the movie was better than the book that he wrote, which is kind of incredible. That
1: makes sense. Because he they use that Tobey Maguire as narrator very sparingly. It's yeah. not like he's narrating every scene or, you know, he's he it's a very light touch to use that device. And I appreciated that because it allowed that story to be bigger.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not like, uh, you know, there's narration in your movie, too. And it's happening, you know, all the time. It's just a different technique. You're right. It's right. not Um, his narration is sparse and only kind of when it kind of adds to the story. But yeah, it's I you know Ang Lee has made many many incredible movies. I mean, obviously he's made like Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon and Life of Pi and he did Brokeback Mountain and he's he's done a lot of incredible films that are all about, you know, a large a large number of them are about the hidden emotions within characters and within people and he's he's got such an amazing visual style his pacing is really, really attractive to me. Like, I love that sort of slow moving, um, especially in this movie where it's about, you know, this ice storm. It's cold. It's in this like wooded area. And I just I there's a coziness to it, you know, while also being about these kind of frigid white people mm-hmm. who are rich and kind of dealing with their own, you know, sort of neuroses. So it's very interesting. It's like it's a great movie.
1: An ice storm is a rare occurrence. And this moment is a rare occurrence. This moment of the 70s, this moment of sexual questioning is a rare occurrence. So I love that as a metaphor as well, that it's just, um, you know, the the singularities that are happening, not in the robot takeover sense, but in the defining moment sense. (laughs) Um, I just, yeah, I love, I absolutely love this movie. I think that um, for me, Just thinking about who these characters become, I feel like Sandy, the younger brother of Mikey, definitely becomes like a serial killer of some (laughs) kind. A hundred percent. He was already weird, but his first sexual experience ended in like a majorly traumatic way. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I'm sure that he became like the BTK killer or whatever. Uh, Uh Exactly. (laughs) But and all in all, what I really love about this is that this is a really beautiful movie about absolutely terrible relationships. Yep. That's what it is. The long and short of it for me is that it is just it's a beautiful movie. Yeah. It really is. And it's about these these unseen, tender moments that are about terrible relationships and the ways that we fail each other in communicating our desires and I just I love it I absolutely love this film and again like I said it to me it's a classic
0: yeah same here love it too it really is a great period piece that doesn't have the vibe of a period piece where it's kind of just like a mockery of the era I mean it really feels lived in mm. um, and uh, there's actually a really great video that's on the Criterion Channel's website about the um production designer for the film and how they found all these different types of houses. And it's really, Ooh. really great. Um, you know, it's 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 to me, this is a very like artfully made masterful film. Toby Maguire plays a schoolboy in both your movie and my movie. And I feel like that <laughs> type serves him very well. He kind of has a schoolboy look to him. He's the prom king. Yeah. So so basically the prom king and queen just happen to be together. In two really great movies. And I'm glad that we got to like play them both and talk about them both. And um, yeah, it's fun. What a time
1: to be alive. What a time. (laughs) Gloria Jeans, I don't know if you're still in business, but your aprons were sick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. What about next week? What are our movies? All right. So, next
0: episode films. Are you ready for them? The movies for next week are. Badlands from 1973, and Six Degrees of Separation from 1993.
1: Try to guess the theme. Try to guess the theme. I don't think you can. Maybe you can. This one is easy.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, sort of. (laughs) You might guess it. Uh, even the hard ones, you guess. So this might. <laughs> exactly.
1: You guys will get it. You're very smart. Um, and you can guess by following us on our social media and sending us a comment. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at I saw pod. And uh, our email address is I saw what you did, pod at gmail.com. And you can still use the promo code SAW for Stitcher Premium if you want to hear our bonus episodes, which you know what? I think you should because it's a very loose hangout where you just get to learn an awful lot about Millie and I. So if you go to Stitcher Premium and use the promo code SAW, you can get one month free trial of Stitcher Premium.
0: Yeah, and we do have a bonus coming out, I think on Thursday, and it's... um it's a bonus that we're doing that kind of expands upon uh, the last week's episode where we did um, Headbangers Ball. We're going to do a little bit of an extended conversation about that as our bonus. So go to Stitcher Premium and check it out there.
1: Excellent. Thanks, y'all. This is fun. I love these films. I love hanging out with you, even though we are potentially middle-aged. We are joyful. <laughs> We are a gregarious bunch of old bitches and I'm here for it.
0: I am too. I love being bitter with you every week on I Saw What You
1: Did. Bye! Bye! (laughs) Mark (laughs) one! Mark one, (laughs) bitch! This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media manager is Taryn Mazza. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod. Email us at I Saw What You Did Pod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.